It is an exciting time in the fellowship for weddings and babies and body life. It's a good deal. All right. So I understand there's a playoff football game today or something. So I'm changing my sermon this morning, and I'm going to preach against worldliness. (laughs) People who neglect the Word of God for sport. (laughs) No, not really. I want to talk to you about love. I want to talk to you about love this morning. The world talks about love. Everybody talks about love. The poets and the songwriters celebrate it or lament the loss of it. And it seems as though everybody has kind of their own definition of love. More and more, particularly in our day, love becomes sort of a self-defined concept. The individual becomes a measure of what love is. And being such a wonderful thing, how could you possibly tell me that my definition is not right, not true? I love. I love. So it's hard to find a common consensus in our society about what love is. And to the extent that we are drawing it from within ourselves, that'll always be true. It'll always be true. But the Word of God is our clear and compelling plumb line of truth. If we want to understand love, we need to understand it as God understands it and has revealed it to us In the word of God. When the Bible speaks about love, it speaks not primarily in terms of emotional attachments. Although much of society does. In fact, when the Bible talks about love, most often the Bible speaks in terms of self-sacrifice. The Bible speaks in terms of commitment Self-sacrifice and commitment. Often to an individual who may or may not be worthy of that self-sacrifice and that kind of commitment. Love is about giving, not getting. Let me just... uh, As we begin to think about such things, let me review with you briefly and quickly just a few of sort of the key passages that speak about love biblically. I think I would start in 1 John 4, 8, and I'm not going to turn you to these, but just quickly. 1 John 4, 8, where it says there that God is love. God is love. And essentially what John means is that God is the source of love. God is the essence of love. God is the explanation of love. God is the definition of love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. 
Or how about this? John 3.16. Because of love, God sent his son into the world to save sinners like you and I. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 8 through 13 where Paul is talking about the cardinal virtues, right? The three cardinal virtues, faith, hope, and love. And there he says, love is the virtue that continues on from this life and into the next. Faith and hope pass at the grave, but life, or love rather, carries forward into the life to come. Romans chapter 13 Verses 8 through 10, where Paul there says love is the Christian's obligation and is the fulfillment of the law. Or Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, where love is the first of that enumerated fruit of the Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit, the person's heart, that produces love. Or 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21, where, where love is a determinative measure of a person's conversion, reveals the true state of a person's soul, right? We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. The Bible has a lot to say about love. A lot. In fact, we can safely say that the, that the Bible places a priority on love. The priority of love. And in fact, that's what we've entitled the message this morning. The priority of love. So open your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. And this morning we'll be looking together at verses 34 to 40. 34 to 40. The context of this section of Matthew's gospel is the same as it was last week. It is Tuesday of Passion Week. This is the week in which Jesus, having come in on Palm Sunday to great acclaim and celebration, has now taken up occupation of the Temple Mount on Monday and Tuesday, asserting very openly and overtly his messianic authority over the temple of God. He is directly confronting the political and religious leadership of the nation of Israel in, in the form of the Sadducees, whose the Temple Mount was their domain, and the Pharisees, whose domain was primarily the synagogue system, but together representatives of Pharisees and Sadducees, making up the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the nation of Israel. So he has come into the capital city of the nation, to the temple, the very center of the worship of the nation, and asserted his claim to be their messianic king. Needless to say, the local authorities are not happy with this, and so there is an ongoing series here on Monday and Tuesday 
of assaults upon the Messiah, verbal assaults on the Messiah, in an attempt to draw him into making some kind of misstatement that they could then either charge him with being politically seditious to the leadership of Rome, to the government of Rome, or get him to say something that would make him unpopular with the people. They've already determined that he must die. They are more than willing to do it. They merely need to separate him from the populace that is acting as a protective shield around him during these days. And so over and over again, they come at him and they are seeking to trip him up in some kind of controversy, some kind of argument, some kind of riddle, as we saw last week, whatever it takes to get this man to say something so they can hang him, as it were. Let's read the text, beginning in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your mind, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So as we look at this together this morning, we will see again how Jesus overcomes his enemies as they seek his undoing. And then we do that together, there is a test. They bring a test to him, and he, and he successfully passes that test, as it were. But in the process of bringing a test to him, they also bring a test to us. And so as we go through this this morning, there is a test for us, a test for you and I here. And the test is to, is to drive us to examine our own lives with regard to the priority of love. As we go through this together we will examine our own hearts in this whole question of the priority of love. Let's begin with the test they bring to Messiah here in really verse 34, but the test begins in verse 35. But 34, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, now, right before that, right, the Sadducees had come to Jesus and they had approached him with their resurrection riddle, right? That's the one that they had honed through hours and hours of dispute and confrontation with the Pharisees until they had arrived at this perfect riddle with regard to the doctrine of the, of the resurrection by which they could mock the doctrine of the resurrection and leave their Pharisaical opponents speechless. So they trot out the riddle and they bring it to Jesus. And, of course, you were here last week, you know that Jesus turned them on their heads. And literally, what it says here, that he had silenced them. The word silenced is the, is the same word for muzzling an animal. He had muzzled them. They had nothing to say. Nothing. He had completely rendered this section of the leadership of the nation speechless. Speechless. Now, the Pharisees had been observing this. Luke's gospel tells us that. They were on the edge of the crowd when the Sadducees brought the riddle. And the crowds were awed, amazed, astonished. Verse 33 here in Matthew, Luke's 
gospel tells us, the Pharisees were standing there and they were sort of cheering and saying, okay, you know, that's one for us. Uh, But it was a short-lived victory lap because they still haven't got over to their hatred of the Messiah. And so it says here, verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had muzzled the Sadducees, notice what they do. They gather themselves together, it says. They withdraw, probably to just a different part of the Temple Mount, but, the, but they draw together and they scheme. That's the idea behind this. They are drawn to the side and they are scheming together. They, they realize that their opponent is even more formidable than they had considered. He has undone the riddle that had always stumped them. And so they need to do something. They need to undo this man. And so it requires them to convene together and to scheme it out what they're going to do. They gathered themselves together. Can't help but think about Psalm 2 and verse 2, speaking messianically, where the psalmist says there, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Even in their wicked scheming, they are fulfilling the prophetic plan of God, scheming together against Messiah. Well, the result of the scheming is that they are going to send a representative. Remember last time they had sent some of their disciples and he had turned that on its head. So this time they pull out the big guns and they're going to send a lawyer. They're going to send a lawyer. Verse 35, one of them, a lawyer. They're going to send the lawyer. Now, a lawyer, and in Mark's gospel, is called a scribe. Scribe, lawyer, basically the same thing. It is one who is an expert in the Mosaic law. It is a person. In this case, it's always a man. It is a man who has, who has made it his life study of the law of Moses. He knows it in and out. Every nuance Every jot, every tittle, he has given himself to this. He is the expert in the Mosaic law. I'm going to send in the lawyer, the hired gun, as it were. And notice they are sending him to ask Jesus, verse 35, a question. And ask him a question. The intent behind the question is to trip him up. They ask him a question, not seeking information, but notice verse 35, testing him, testing him. The design behind this question that that comes out of the gathering and scheming of the Pharisees is to trip Jesus up. Hit him with a question. Get your lawyer to hit him with a question that is going to trip him up. That's going to trip him up. In this case, it's, it's not likely a design of the question to trip him up with regard to Rome. So they're not trying to draw him into a politically seditious statement. They are trying to pry him loose from the popular crowds. So ask him a question that will somehow create space, create alienation between him and the populace. Something they can accuse him with before the people. Ask him the in question, induce him to say something, and then turn it on him. Verse 36, right? Which is the great commandment in the law? Now, 
for most of us, we're sort of so used to reading this account and, you know, the, how it plays out here, and we just don't really think much about what all that means. But there's an important background that goes behind this, and, and the background sort of illustrates the, the, the reality of the test here. So the background is, is simply this. Over the centuries, the, the scribes and the rabbis had, had uh, determined that, that the, the law of Moses uh, the, can be uh, broken down into 613 separate regulations. So they've worked their way through the, you know, the, the books of Moses there at the beginning, and, and they've discerned for them, and this has been honed over a period of, of a very long time, 613 separate rules and regulations, laws. Furthermore, as they have refined this process, uh, they've determined that there are two kinds of laws. There are heavy and light So there are heavy commandments and there are light commandments. The heavy commandments are absolutely binding, while the light commandments are a little less binding. So 613, heavy and light. The heavy are absolutely binding, the light are binding but less binding. Now, you can see an illustration of this pharisaical division here in in the next chapter. Chapter 23, just kind of look over here, verse 23. Uh, we'll get to this at some point and give it a more thorough treatment. But, but notice what he says, verse 23. And it's not that Jesus is endorsing the heavy light, but, he, but he's using it. Okay? It just speaks to the reality of this. So Matthew 23, 23, where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, these Thing, these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So just the idea of the weightier provisions of the law. That's what I want you to see. Just so you understand it. That's, that's going on. That's how it is understood in that day and age among both the leadership of the nation, the Pharisees in particular. And since they are the teachers of the common people through the synagogue system, it's the understanding of the populace at large. 613 regulations broken down into heavy and light. Now, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to figure out that if you're going to come up with 613 and you're going to break them down into heavy and light, that there would be no end to disputing about what is heavy and what is light, right? And that's exactly what goes on here. And even if you could come to an agreement with somebody about what's heavy and what's light, you then need to categorize the heavy in terms of priorities and light in terms of priorities. So if you just for the grins, let's say you just split it down the middle, right? So there's 306 in each category. Well, how do they rank within the category? And so you can see there's infinite permutations about heavy and light and arrangements and so forth. And so there is no end to the disputing. And however you do it, you are bound to offend somebody. You are bound to offend somebody. So they send the lawyer. Now, there is is something about lawyers, both professional and amateur, and that is they love to debate. Lawyers love to debate. If, if they don't, they really don't belong as lawyers. They like 
that sort of thing. They like to get into the, to the, into the nuances of a legal code and, and to hash it out what it means. That's that sort of um, personality and education and, and approach and so forth lends itself to a student of the law. And so this is perfect debate territory. This is fertile ground, right? This is the place where you display your intellectual prowess. This is the place where you display your spiritual maturity. And so it is a place of almost infinite disagreement, infinite dispute, and guaranteed offense. In fact, it was sort of a a common thing in that day where... um, they would, uh, they would challenge uh, uh, a, a scribe or Pharisee to, to demonstrate their proficiency in the law and its relative heavy and lightness and its arrangements and so forth. And they would say, here's the challenge. I want you to summarize the law and explain it to me while I stand on one foot. That's the test. Give me the law while I stand on one foot. While I stand on one foot. So it is into that kind of quagmire that they seek to draw the Son of God. They seek to draw the Son of God. This is the test. So how is Jesus going to respond? In the most insightful way. In the most insightful way. Rather than rebuke them, he answers their question. But in doing so, he, he shreds their facade of religiosity. So let's pick it up here, verse 37, his answer. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Jesus cuts through the, the haze of the, of the conflicting opinions, right? And, and, he, and he drives to the heart of the law, the heart of the law. And the heart of the law is the heart. It is the heart, pun intended. He quotes here the opening line of the Shema. He quotes for them the opening line of the Shema. Now, the Shema... Uh, was and is for the nation of Israel. It is their, their theological creed. It is their confession. The, the name comes from the, the first word in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, which is the word here. It's the word Shema in Hebrew. And so that's where it is drawn from. And it is their creed. It is the confession that every pious Jew in that day and today would recite morning and evening. Morning and evening. It is not a prayer. It is not a prayer. It is a, it is a creed. It is a confession of faith. It summarizes you know, in, a, in, a, in a short, you know, not too many words, the theological understanding of the nation of Israel, God's covenant people. And it's recited, again, as I say, by every pious Jew, even to this day, both morning and evening. And that is in accordance with the instructions of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 7, where it says, when you lie down and when you rise up. And so that's why it is done. Now, women, 
Slaves and children were not required to recite the Shema, but boys, as soon as they were able to speak, were taught to memorize and repeat back the opening line, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And that's how it begins. Now, over time, the the Shema developed and, and came to include three passages of Scripture. Three passages of Scripture. And just, and just quickly, uh, let me show them to you so you kind of have an understanding of, of this. So the first passage of Scripture, and I'll turn you there, is to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it, where it begins. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. And again, re- remember, this is not a prayer. You know, in certain... Um, um, Groupings within the Christian church, we have the Westminster Catechism or the Westminster Confession where, where people are taught, children are taught and up through adults to, to recite this confession of faith as a way of summarizing Christian belief. We are not a confessional church and so we don't take that approach. But within Israel, the Shema was their confession of faith. It was something that everyone would know. Everyone would know. And so it begins here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. And it begins with the proclamation of the oneness of God and the call for Israel to love him and obey his commandments. Now remember, this is given to the nation of Israel at the time they are ready to enter into the promised land. The promised land is absolutely filled with idolaters. And so this is a very significant statement about their God. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay? That's the first part that would be memorized and recited twice a day. As it developed over the the centuries, really, they they added Deuteronomy chapter 11 and beginning in verse 13. Deuteronomy 11 beginning in verse 13 and running through verse 21. And this was a a section that that enunciates the the rewards for being obedient to the commandments of God and the punishments associated with disobedience to the commandments of God. So you can see why this makes a really good confession. There's a theological statement at the beginning, and now it goes on to talk about how we relate to God in his commandments and when we obey them, what, what comes of it, and when we disobey them, what comes of it. So beginning here in verse 13, Deuteronomy chapter 11, it says, It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. So if you will obey his commandments, he will will pour forth blessing upon you. Verse 16, beware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. 
or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit. And you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land, which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. We live in a day and age where we hardly memorize anything. So can you, you know, we're memorizing all this stuff and we're repeating it back morning and night. Third, part of the Shema as it fully developed is it found in Numbers chapter 15. So Numbers chapter 15 and verse 37. And this section concerns the issue of tassels. Tassels. Tassels on their garments. And the purpose of the tassels on the garments is to see is to serve as a reminder to keep all the commandments of the Lord. So Numbers chapter 15 verse 37. And following, the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel, excuse me, they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot. So that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Okay? So those three passages together form the Shema that would be recited by every pious, faithful Jew from the time they are a small boy and up throughout their lives. In addition... In addition to that, the two passages from Deuteronomy, so Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11, were combined with two other passages drawn from Exodus, and we won't look at them, I'll just tell you them. It's Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, and Exodus chapter 13, verses, I I got a mistake in my notes, not sure. Exodus 13, 1 through 10, and there's a fourth one, and I'm I'm not going to say it because I think I'm wrong here. But in any case, the four passages were copied on small pieces of parchment with, like, minuscule writing. And I've seen them. And it is incredibly incredible how small a handwriting can be and still be legible. They were copied on these small pieces of parchment, and then they were placed in leather boxes called phylacteries, and then they were bound to the forehead and to the left arm of a Jewish man during their prayer times. And again, it still is uh, very much a part of the life of the nation of Israel among the pious even to this day. They bind the leather box to their forehead. It's got straps, and they tie it around the back of their head. It's got these long straps and uh, it, it starts up here, and, and then it, it's bound in a particular way so that it 
comes around the fingers and it ends up, it's not just haphazard. There's a, there's a precise way that this is all bound and it gets it near your heart, right? Your heart's on the left side, gets it near your heart. And so you are literally tying the word of God onto your head and onto your heart. And it is done when they pray. It is done when they pray. Beyond that, the, uh, the, the two uh, passages in Deuteronomy here, Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11, are also uh, copied again on small pieces of parchment, and, and, they're, and they're put into small boxes called uh, mezuzahs, and they are attached to the, to the door frame or doorpost of the home. So when you go in and out of the home, and what you'll see is they'll, they'll touch them as they go in the home, and there in the little box is a little copy of a little piece of the Word of God. This is all in keeping with a very, uh, I would suggest, woodenly literal understanding of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Right? So it's literally tied to their head, tied to their arms, and, and uh, nailed, as it were, next to the doors of their houses. That's the background. So they come to Jesus, back to Matthew. They come to Jesus. And they ask him, which is the great commandment? Which is the great commandment? Now, rather than um, being drawn in and, and, and choosing one of the 613, notice what he does. He does a little, uh, I call it spiritual jujitsu. He just sort of turns them on themselves, right? What he says, in effect, is the great commandment of the law is the one you recite twice a day, tie to your head, tie to your arm, and nail to your door. That's the great commandment. It is bound to your body. It is deposited all over your community. subtext you're guilty of form over substance you were all about form god is all about substance you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind the very thing you are constantly reciting that is the great commandment Now, that is a comprehensive statement, beloved. That is a very, very comprehensive statement. Take a look at it here. Verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God. Notice the threefold use of the word all. With all your heart. And with all your soul. And with all your mind. And what is being communicated here is with the totality of your being. With all that you are, with everything that you are, you shall love the Lord your God. Nothing in reserve, no holdouts, no secret closets that, with a sign that says off limits to God. It is, it is the all of you is to love God. This is the great commandment. The totality of your being. Maybe said today, we are to love the Lord our God with our will. All of our will. We are to love the Lord our God with our emotions. 
all of our emotions. We are to love the Lord our God with our intellect, all of our intellect. We are to love the Lord our God with our bodies, all of our bodies, every aspect of our body. In other words, we are to be totally committed to the Lord our God, sold out to God, nothing in reserve, no holdbacks, no holdouts. This is the great commandment. Verse 38, this is the great and foremost commandment. But then notice Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He, he goes on to, to cite Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And the commandment there to love your neighbor. This is the great and foremost command, verse 38. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second commandment is, is like the great commandment. Not only in the sense that it is equally important, but I would suggest to you it, it, is, it is like the great commandment in the sense that it, that it actualizes the great commandment in space and time. Maybe said this way. They are both, they are two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. Wherever one is, the other one necessarily will be. It will necessarily be. Jesus is insisting here that the love of God cannot and does not occur in a merely self-centered religious experience. True love for God produces an inescapable, practical, and altruistic love for others. To love God is to love others. To love others. And the greatest illustration of that is Jesus himself. Jesus himself. First John chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This, uh, this theme runs all through both Testaments. It is inescapable. Everywhere you look, you cannot say that you love God without loving those made in his image. They are two sides of the same coin. And then Jesus applies it for us. He applies it for us in verse 40. On these two commandments, he says, depend or hang the whole law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets is just a, is just a way that the Jews would refer to the Old Testament. Broken down into two basic categories, the law and the prophets. By the way, I think it's interesting here, just as maybe a bit of an aside, but, but you remember the, the riddle of the resurrection. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the, of, uh, the, of the Old Testament, right? The books of Moses. And so Jesus responds to them with the res, about the resurrection from the only part they accepted. The Pharisees, conversely, said that the entire Old Testament was the word of God, law and prophets. And notice Jesus answers them from the law and the prophets. 
Just find it interesting. On these two commandments depend or hang the whole law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament. That is, these two commandments found here in Deuteronomy 6 and following Leviticus 19, they are the, they are the summarization of the law of God and the prophets. So they are the summarization of the Old Testament. What's the Old Testament about? Can you explain it to me while I stand on one leg? Yes. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Are you still standing? Wow. Easy to say. Incredibly dense, profound, convicting, challenging to begin to consider and implement, right? Together, love of God and love of those made in his image. They cover all the main areas of human concern. How can I be rightly related to my creator? How can I be rightly related to my fellow man? You want to be rightly related to your creator? Love him with the all of you. You want to be rightly related to your neighbor? Love him as you love yourself. Now, Jesus is not, um, not saying here, there are some that, that understand it this way, and I, I need to put an end to that misunderstanding. Jesus is not saying here that, that the entire ethical code of the Old Testament, all its rules and regulations and so forth, can be just thrown out and replaced with this simple statement, right? Uh, all you need is love, right? I mean, the Beatles could, could sing it, but you know I'm saying you can't just... Say, uh, the, you know, throw the law away. All I need is love. Love, 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 love. Okay. Rather, what he is saying here is, is that, the, that the, the, the code, the legal codes, the ethical code of both Old and I would say New Testament, both are nothing but a working out, practically speaking, of the implications of what it means to love God and people. That's what it's all about. It is the working out of the practical application and aspect of loving God and loving people. It's what it means to love God. It's what it means to love people. D.A. Carson says here, and I think he says it well, a little quote for you here. He says, it is not a question of the priority of love over law, but the priority of love within the law. Sterile religion, no matter how disciplined, is never adequate. It's a good way to say it. It's a good way to say it. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the the books of the law, demand a heart relationship with God. It is always a matter of the heart. It has always been a matter of the heart. The deeds of obedience both to God and concern for man is an expression of a heart 
given to God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, right? Verses 12 and 13. Deuteronomy is right in the, it's the fifth book of the Bible, right? It's part of the Pentateuch, you know, the books of Moses, the law. Look what it says. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding for you for your good. Sterile obedience, religious ritual, going through the motions, never satisfies God. Never satisfies God. He's after our hearts. He is after our hearts. Or how about the prophets? Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, where God says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, is that an excuse that for, the, for the Old Testament believer to just abandon the sacrificial system? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Or how about this one? Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? It's a matter of the heart. He says in Deuteronomy, circumcise your heart. Circumcise your heart. Beloved, true religion is not a matter of externals. It's a question of the affections. It's a question of the affections. Whom and what do we love? That's the question. Whom and what do we love? What's the genesis of sin? All sin is a result of loving oneself more than one loves God. That's what it is. It is an expression of the love of self more than the love of God, and I would say consequently then more than the love of those made in his image. That is the source of sin. So true conversion is first and foremost a change of affections. It is a change of affections. It is conversion. It is a rearrangement of priority. It is a transference of love from self to God. And it is impossible to work on our own. One cannot change their own affections. What that means is that self-reform is impossible. You cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You, can, you cannot change your circumstances. You can, there is nothing you can do or not do that will change your affections. The only way our affections can be changed and can be, can be turned from self to God is that the Spirit of God does it. He converts us. He turns us from lovers of self to lovers of God. It is a divine work. Salvation is of the Lord. It is of the Lord. And when the affections change, one loves God and those made in his image.
But we don't do it perfectly, do we? If your affections have been changed this morning by the Spirit of God, there is a real change, a real and substantive change. But you and I both know that it's not, it's not perfect. We don't live up to our best aspirations. All too many times we find ourselves loving ourselves more than we love God in the moment. If you were to sit us down and talk to us and ask us, we would say, no, we love God more. And, and, and we would be genuine in that. We would want to love God more. Maybe that's how we should answer it. I want to love God more. But I find myself loving myself in this circumstance. There's a war that goes on, isn't there? A war in the affections for the children of God. By the way, um, you can know whether you're a child of God or not whether the, by whether there's a war or not. If you're not at war, you're not a child of God. It's when you're at war that you find yourself a child of God. The spirit and the flesh are in combat. And the prize is the affections. So is there no hope? Must we live pushed back and forth? Like those crazy cartoons, right? With the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other and they're both blown in our ear. Is that what the Christian life is? Perish the thought. May it never be. May it never be. For those in Christ Jesus, we are a new creation. Behold, all things have become new. The gospel is powerful in each and every situation. There is no temptation. That in the power of the gospel, as the Spirit works in us, that we cannot overcome. But we fall often. We fall often. That's because we have become doubtful of the power of the gospel or we forget the promises of the gospel in the moment. How do I cultivate my affections for God? What can I do to cultivate my affections for God? What am I to do? How do I cultivate a growing and greater love for God? It is my heart's desire. It's it's that which I want. Beloved, I think it begins with self-evaluation. It just begins with self-evaluation. One must know the extent of one's problem before one can begin to address it. So it begins with self-examination, and I would suggest this. It begins by prayerfully examining our actions and our motives. Examining prayerfully our actions and our motives. Asking ourselves a question in the moment. Was that loving and serving others? Was I loving and serving others in that? Now, the heart is is deceitful. Right? And, and lies to us. So we need some help in getting after that rascal. And so here's a, here's a way to go after it. I think one, one clue as to who we are serving, whether God or self, is to, is to evaluate our response when our will is thwarted. How do we respond when serving and our will is thwarted? How do we respond when serving others and our service goes unappreciated? 
or our service gets criticized. Well, if we find ourselves rising up in anger, then we have a good clue we are not serving others, but we are using this activity as a cover to serve ourselves. So it begins with this evaluation, even in the moment. Was I loving and serving others? Listen, you find yourself angry in a moment? Ask the question, why am I angry here? Why am I angry? Beyond that, secondly, I think we need to get away. We need, we need, a, we need a sabbatical. It might only be an hour long. That's a very short sabbatical. We need to get away from the press of life with, with some regularity. Listen, we're living in a, in a crazy, crazy world. Isn't that true? It is a constant press. There's the the, the to-do the, the do list is a mile long, right? And the, and the smartphone continues to remind you of all that you have not yet done. The text messages, the emails, the phone calls, they come barreling in and, and the life of the soul is crowded. It's crowded. So I think we need to get away, and, and I would suggest with an hour. Get away for an hour and prayerfully before God examine the trajectory of your life. What is the trajectory of my life? If I continue on the path that I am on right now, and it just continues this way, where will I be five years from now? Where will I be? Where am I headed? Am I currently loving God and serving others in my life? And if I say yes, in what ways? How am I loving and serving? How is that happening? Because you know what? Whatever characterizes our life today... Without change, five years from now, we're going to be right where we are. We're going to be right where we are. So examine the trajectory of your life. Third, and finally, we need God. <laughs> we need the gospel. This is not self-reformation. This is not make another to-do list. Let me make my to-do list of how to love and serve other people, Right? If you do that, you are defeated before you put the first mark on the paper. The Spirit of God, hang on to this. If you don't get anything else out of this morning, hang on to this. The Spirit of God saves and sanctifies his people as they gaze upon the face of Christ. I'll say it again. The Spirit of God saves and sanctifies his people as they gaze upon the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We gaze upon the face of Christ. Where? Where? Where do we gaze upon the face of Christ? How would Paul answer that question? How would you answer that question? Where do I go to gaze upon the face of Christ? 
the context of 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the veil lying over the face, right, of the, of the unsaved Israelite every time the law of Moses is read. He says the veil is lifted in Christ. Where do we see the face of Christ? Where do we gaze upon the face of Christ? We gaze upon the face of Christ in the Word of Christ. The Word of Christ. It sounds like such a, such a first-grade Sunday school answer, Right? Why do you think it's a first grade Sunday school answer? It's because we are so dumb it takes us from first grade in Sunday school to the day the Lord takes us home to learn it. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to save and transform His people as they gaze on the face of Christ. Listen, this is just not another to-do list. This is not another regulation. Okay, this morning, that I love God, that I love my neighbor, check, check, everything's good. This is about a, tra- a radical transformation of our lives. It occurs at the moment of conversion and it is forever the, trans- the, the trajectory of our life from that place forward. Beloved, if I could I plead with you. If you are not saturating yourselves in the Word of God. You, you, you are anemic. You are anemic. You are susceptible to all kinds of plague and disease. Feed on the Word of God. Saturate yourself in the Word of God. Pour over the Word of God. Prayerfully meditate on the Word of God. And let the Spirit do His work. And you will grow in your love of God and your love of those made in His image. Let's pray. Father, we want to love You. We do love You. We love You because You first loved us. You sent your Son into this world to be the propitiation for our sin. You, you have wiped the slate clean for us. Fill us with your Spirit. The Spirit longs. He's jealous of us. He, he longs for us to walk in the kind of harmony and, and fulfilling relationship with you that we were designed originally to have. To restore that which was lost in Eden. Father, it's our best desire. It's our highest goal. But, oh Lord, we find ourselves so often eating slop with the pigs. We wake up. We come to our senses. We say, how do we get so far? Oh Lord, draw us back to the Father's house. Do your good work in us. Use your word to transform us. And Father, for those who are here this morning who who have yet to experience that, that fundamental change of affections that occurs at the moment of conversion, may today be their day. Open their eyes. Fill their hearts with a longing for Christ. May he be to them the most beautiful person 
And may they flee to His cross to be reconciled with You. Oh, Father, do what You have commanded in us. Help us to love You with the totality of our being. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace, beloved. God bless you.